Compost is a never-ending mystery because it's kind of the one point where you can see the other side of death. You can see what happens after death and how food does come back, that good things do return, that there's a whole wealth that happens at the moment of death and after it, that it's not as dead as everything looks, right? It's not as dark as everyone assumes. You know, whether it's songs of glory, songs of celebration, whether it's, you know, name it and claim it or whatever your gospel might be, theology of the compost is a theology of death. Healthy things grow in healthy soil, but if you don't have healthy soil, nothing healthy will grow. And that is just a reality of farming. Like, you have to attend to that. That has to be day one. You, you cannot start with the plant if the soil is not healthy. And if you care about the plant and don't understand the soil, well, you don't really understand the providence of the death that's made this space for your fertility. I think it really is the richest idea that, that I learned from the farminary. It's a beautiful, beautiful instantiation of what most of the time I treat as a metaphor, right? Resurrection. And then when you stand in the compost pile, it's not just a metaphor anymore. Welcome to the Earthkeepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earthkeepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. In this episode, I'll be talking to Wesley Willison about his experiences at the Farminary, which, according to Princeton Seminary, is a place where theological education is integrated with small-scale, regenerative agriculture to train faith leaders, leaders who care about ecology, sustainability, and food justice. Wesley is that kind of leader, and we'll be discussing how his Farminary education has impacted every part of his life, his faith, and his leadership. Welcome, friends, to the Earthkeepers Podcast. Wesley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking part of your day to be with us. Wondering if you could orient our listeners to you and who you are by talking about where you are, maybe about your family and your work. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Uncle Forrest. I am in Lenape land. I'm in the Lenape watershed of the Delaware River. I live in Philadelphia right now. I've lived here since college. I've lived here since 2008 and in different parts of the city, different parts of the region. But I initially came here because I went to college here and then I stayed because I went to grad school here and found some really great community. But to go even further back, I call you uncle because you are my uncle. You and my parents are very close. You've known me about as long as anyone in the world. And so it's fun to reconnect and see each other and talk things over. I have to say something that one of my best memories Sure. Uh, was when we were at church, your parents and I, I would always volunteer to carry you around. Right? Yeah, I remember this. Up on your shoulders. Up on my shoulder. And like some babies, you had a habit of spitting up a little now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and you would always do that on me, right? And you'd kind of leave this stain on my shirt. And instead of like cleaning it off completely, I'd like wear it the rest of the day as a badge of honor. Oh, it's boy. Like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> I am actually an uncle. Yeah. Of course, this is before I had my own daughter, but uh, yeah. 
I'm not sure if that's a great strategy in a podcast to remind your guest about the times they've spit on you. You know, but, uh, it happens. Yeah. It happens. It happens. At least it hasn't happened really since then. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'm thankful. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's really, really awesome to be with you and awesome to be, I think, working with you again in the future. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But let me ask you, first of all, about how your life is connecting to themes mm -hmm. of earth care and creation, ecology these days. What's going on? Yeah. So I went to seminary at Princeton starting in 2016. I'd been working in a church, in a vineyard church in the Philadelphia area. I was thinking about whether I wanted to go into ministry full time. And I'm a reader. I'm a nerd. I like thinking about things and reading things and reflecting. And seminary seemed like a really good option. Princeton paid for me. That was really lovely. If anyone has the privilege to get their grad school paid for, I mean, that's a pretty good way to do it. And so I started in 2016, and I remember showing up for Greek the first summer, and I was taking my Greek class before other students were on campus, right? But I was commuting from Philadelphia. I stayed living in Philadelphia even while I attended school in Princeton. So it's about an hour drive, which isn't too bad. And I had learned to time it so it wasn't like a real drag on my spirit or anything. But that sort of disconnection place-wise was raising some red flags for me. I was like, wait, what kind of belonging can I have to this community if I'm not here physically, right? Like physical location isn't everything for belonging, but it's a whole lot of it. it really matters. And so I remember you know, wondering, like, what does it mean for me to actually commit to this education in a school that is so live-in, right? Being on campus is very significant to a school like Princeton Seminary, where there are dorms, you know, students do live on campus, things like that. And they have very minimal online teaching. Most of it is in person in these big old stone buildings that have been there since the 19th century. One of the things that struck me that summer is someone came and did an introductory meeting for this project that was starting at the seminary called the Farminary. The Farminary was a farm that was also a classroom. It was like a workshop or like a lab for the seminary. Farm plus seminary, Farminary. And the leader of the Farminary, Nate Stuckey, had recently gotten his PhD, had been commissioned with the building of this project, and they were about to enter into their second year of classes being offered towards degree programs. He did like an informational session, and I was one of just a few people who showed up. But the way he talked about it was captivating because he was poking at a lot of the things that had been resonating with me, right? Questions about sort of the dissolvement of, you know, the parish model, of questions about what it means to live with people who you go to church with, the rise of commuter faith, of the internet, of all these things. And he was just proposing a very simple option as part of my education, part of the matter, of course, of being at seminary, which was, hey, why not learn something about agrarianism, about agriculture, while you're learning about the Bible? You're taking Greek, right? You're learning Greek so that you can read the Bible in its original context. Well, why not learn something about farming? Because everyone in the Bible are farmers. Jesus, he's a carpenter, but he doesn't use carpentry metaphors. He uses farming metaphors. Isn't right. that interesting, right? Like it is like it's part of the mental framework of learning to understand the kind of person that Jesus is, the kind of things that Jesus was trying to teach and what it means when we say that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, there's a lot of metaphors and images that don't necessarily click without that connection. So that was enough for me to start showing up and do compost 
over the summer, I would show up earlier in the mornings or after class was over and just walk around and reflect or get some work done, you know, and help turn the compost piles over. That eventually became a real cornerstone of my whole time at the seminary. I took Ecologies of Faith Formation that fall. I took Soil and Sabbath was the class the following year. And that was a pivotal class looking at the ways in which the earth rests, the ways in which agriculture builds in space for recovery, for compost, for death, for rest, for sleep, compared to capitalism, which is ceaselessness and, you know, unrelenting productivity. And then I ended up writing my thesis in conjunction with the farminary as well on design and architecture and their connection to theology. And it was just a really nourishing place for me. That was probably the moment where I realized this is not ancillary, right? To consider my history in relationship to the earth, to consider my present in relationship to the earth is fundamental. I can learn more about myself by examining my environment, by understanding how I relate to my environment and how the environment encounters me, right? This is at the same time as reading people like Barton Bruner about natural theology. Sure, we can go into all that if you want to go into the reformed theology of finding God in nature. I don't really want to go down that road, but I do mean that there's real responsibility in knowing God as a part of paying attention, of yeah. giving attention, and maybe paying is the wrong word, but of giving your attention to the world around you. And I encountered that at the farminary, much less than at the seminary, frankly, which was a pretty disembodied experience. And then being at the farminary was a really helpful way to get back into my flesh before driving an hour back to Philadelphia. So that's where I think the story really clicks in for me. Let me ask you, I picked up on this part of your story where there weren't that many people who were at the information session about the farminary, and it makes me curious. I wonder if that was actually resonating with someone who you already were, or in other words, were there parts of you that were primed really to hear that message, to hear about the possibilities that the farminary offered? Right. I think I wasn't primed in the way that like, I didn't apply to the seminary knowing that I wanted to be at the farminary. Almost no one did at that point. I actually only have one friend who knew about the farminary before coming. And that's because she was a farmer. Her name is Pearl Quick. She'll feature more in this story later. But she came to the seminary wanting to know how her faith connected to the farm. Because she has a degree in soil science. She's a brilliant farmer. Did a lot of work in the Bronx around food access and food justice for the neighborhoods she grew up in. And so that was also part of being introduced to the seminary is like the other things that were clicking with me were people who were also interested in the farminary, right? That for some reason there was resonance there, that whatever priming <laughs> had happened in the past, whatever books I'd been reading or accounts that I'd been paying attention to, I knew that what they were describing at the farminary, what they were inviting me into sounded right to me. I remember I read Strange Glory by Charles Marsh that summer. That's a biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the things that stood out to me about Bonhoeffer's story was the Finkenwalde farm and school, right? This sort of secret seminary for resisting ministers in Nazi Germany. That may have been one of the priming things that was coming to mind, right? Like, what does it look like if someone's zagging when the church is zigging, right? How do you pay attention to what the spirit could be doing when something looks really weird yeah. and smells like compost? <laughs> And so I think, yeah, I think there was something going on and I'm not sure I can put my finger on it, but I will say that the farminary was a hundred percent a surprise. I did not know it was possible to do seminary like that. And I'm glad I showed up for that informational session. Yeah. In this season, just uh, 
few episodes ago, actually, we talked to a person from Uganda who was contending that people in the West had a lot to learn from Ugandans yeah. about uh, an ecological sensibility, a sort of awareness of your place yes. uh, and a groundedness. Now, you have a very interesting story. I know you, of course, from early days in Chicago, but you did a lot of your growing up in Uganda. I'm wondering, you know, did you pick stuff up there? Were you shaped by that experience of living in Uganda in the sense that it might have made you a bit more sensitized to these issues of ecology and place? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I moved with my family to East Africa as I was entering high school. So I went to high school in East Africa. I have a bunch of younger siblings. So Uncle Forrest has a bunch of nephews and nieces. I'm just the oldest of this line. But my experience in Africa, there's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She wrote the book Americana. She has this great line in the beginning where she's describing coming to America as an African student, right? So she moves to Princeton. And the first thing she noticed when she gets to Princeton's, she writes in the book, it's like in the first chapter, she says, Princeton doesn't smell like anywhere. You can't smell Princeton when you get there. And that's true. It's very sterile. A lot of the American experience, especially in the North as it gets colder, is smells go away. It's a very clean environment. Whereas when you step off the plane in Uganda, you step through like a curtain of humidity. You can like feel it hit you. And then you smell the world. Like the smell is just palpable. It's perpetual. And I loved living there for, I mean, frankly, a lot of the things that come back are sensory, right? Of washing red dirt off my hands and feet at the end of the day. And like, you're washing your face and the water runs red because you have all this dirt on your face from the whole day. Because there just aren't as many impermeable paved surfaces. You're just connected to the dirt a lot more. I remember once helping my dad, we were installing fence posts along the boundary of our property. We, you know, staked these big wooden fence posts into the ground, strung the barbed wire, and then came back the next week. And the fence post was growing because the land was so fertile. The tree had just started growing as a fence post. It was like, well, I'll just try this. Guess we'll just keep growing. And then it, it did help. Then it was a fence that was growing. It's a pretty good fence. But yeah, there's a different relationship because a lot of the boundaries that we set up around, you know, say having air conditioning and windows and closed envelopes for insulation. A lot of those just don't exist. It's a lot of breeze blocks, a lot of permeable relationship with the natural world. I don't really know how much of that was impressed upon me as like a component of my faith. I think that was more just latent, passive, as Luther would say, imputation. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily absorbing it consciously, but I think that's right, that there's something about being in an environment where you know, you can always smell everything that's going on around you. Or you're reminded you're not really in your own cocoon. Everything is deeply, deeply related. Well, you went to Princeton Seminary, I think with some goals that changed along the way from the sound of your story. That's correct. Let me read to you what the official description of the farminary is. The farminary, they say on the website, is a place where theological education is integrated with small-scale regenerative agriculture to train faith leaders who are conversant in the areas of ecology, sustainability, and food justice. It's designed to train students to challenge society's 24-7 culture of productivity by following a different rhythm, one that is governed by the seasons and Sabbath. So this makes me wonder, you know, in terms of new ways of thinking and being, what in your view does the farminary 
represent? I mean, does it simply offer a unique specialization that's just targeted to a few students who might be interested? Or is it in fact reflective of maybe a necessary corrective of more traditional approaches to theological education? That's a tough question because frankly, I think students come with different expectations. And as with, you know, schools are multifarious places. People come in as complex beings and experience different things and not everyone comes out with the same experience. It's inevitable that you will read the Bible differently once you've spent time on a farm, asked to reflect about, you know, stories that you've been told, and then looking at your hands as you're weeding the garden and thinking through, you know, what is God doing when God's separating the wheat from the chaff? When we talk about a threshing floor, we talk about all these other things where separation is an important component. I think it's inevitable that there are certain things that, of course, everyone will glean. But as far as a transformative experience of like coming out the other side with a dramatically different understanding of God, of nature, of what the Bible is doing, of American identity in the midst of all, I don't know how much other people share my experience, but I think setting up the environment, setting up the place as a teacher is maybe the best thing that the farmingary has done. There are tremendous professors there, really, really special people teaching incredible content, but it's almost the context itself that's like impressing you with a different way of sensing what is meaningful and important. So for instance, I ended up doing a lot of work on the ideas of affordances and design theory and thinking about how our bodies are sort of taught by our environments or the pedagogy of the way our environments are shaped. Some people call this feng shui, some people call it, yeah, affordances or interior planning. There's a lot of ways to think about it, but it was just being in the farm and just noticing what happens, what tends to grow, what tends to die, what tends to thrive, what tends to flourish, separate from my intentions. And then considering my intentions, what do I tend to do and tend not to do regardless of my intentions? Like all of that is just a matter of just spending time there and paying attention or giving attention, I guess that's what I said, is a more accurate representation is that there's a revelation, a revealing of how the earth is reflective of the glory of God already that just came from just being there. And that was really exciting. I'm really grateful for that. I think the space itself, kind of the underrepresented side of that description that the Farminary website gives, it places a lot of stake in like how we make these theoretical connections based on expected patterns of what food is to faith and what faith is to politics and what politics is to food and all that. But honestly, we don't know all the connections that will happen when you just go into the space openly and see what you'll find, you know, be open yeah. to whatever will happen. And I really appreciate the open framework that the farminary assumes. That was really special. Your mention earlier of compost reminds me of another episode a ways back. We talked to some folks from Casa Adobe and this one young chap, Johan, was talking about his role in the community garden of this intentional community. And he was committed to compost. And I asked him why, and he talked about a spirituality of compost. Yeah. Like for him, he sensed God in the compost, but really in the process of the compost and then what people did with the compost. And it was just a really deep and powerful thing. I'm wondering, why do you mention compost? Why does it stand out for you as maybe one of the elements of the experience that seemed more important? 
I think there's a Luther, I'm using a lot of Luther, I guess. The works of God appear evil, but are in fact good, something like that. That's kind of how it feels when you get to the compost pile. It stinks. It's nasty. You know, there's a lot of like plastic. It's wild how much plastic ends up in compost piles, but that's an honest reality. That there's just so much packaging around our food. You get to the compost pile expecting it to be steamy and brown and like nutritious and all that. And you're like, no, there's a lot of twist ties. And like the Chiquita banana lady is showing up all over the place. And you got to pull that out. And it's covered in like spinach that's turned to liquid and it stinks and it gets all over your jeans. And that's hard to reckon with that there's a reality, a thingness to compost that's doing something on its own, right? It is active and perpetuating itself, regardless of whether you show up. Your involvement is extra. You know, it, you could join in, you can turn it over, but it'll just keep going. It'll just keep being a mix of plastic and everything else until someone gets involved. There's something about the kingdom of God that really excites me when I think about how compost piles are turning even plastic, like even the least biodegradable parts of the world as we've built it. And it's saying, well, you're here. <laughs> if no one notices, it's just, it's up to the compost pile to know what to do with it. And, you know, showing up to the compost pile is day one install of being a student at the farminary. The first thing every student does, every class that's taught, you go to the compost pile and you get a sense of, you know, what is the human's role in this part? Like, how do we contribute to it? And when do we extract from it and take from it? And mixing the browns and the greens and turning the pile over and, you know, what is the value of you know, so for instance, there was this one, I remember one day when we started, I think, Soil and Sabbath, that class, the first week, we show up to the pile and there's pallets of food that have been dropped off from HelloFresh. I don't know if you know HelloFresh or Blue Apron, these like food delivery services. These are pallets with huge, big boxes, like three feet tall and then like four feet aside, right? The size of a pallet full of chopped up scallions, chopped up green onions in tiny little plastic bags. So each piece of food was inside its own individually wrapped bag. So the majority of that pallet was plastic, and they were dropping it off to us as a tax write-off, right? So they're dropping off X number of dollars to say that they don't have to pay tax on this because of waste or it's donated to a nonprofit or whatever. And so then there we were in class unwrapping individual pieces of scallions to throw into the compost pile and then separating out the plastic, which would go into a dump. You know, there's nothing that can be done with that plastic. It's waste. It really cannot be composted, as far as we know. And that was an impressive lesson. As far as the first experience of a class about Sabbath and rest, and thinking about what it means to die, and to be taken back into the earth, and to let God do with you and your body as God wants, not as, you know, you preserved in a <laughs> encased in plastic or cryogenics or whatever else, you know, newfangled ideas on Twitter that day. I mean, that experience, compost is a never-ending mystery because it's kind of the one point where you can see the other side of death. You can see what happens after death and how food does come back, that good things do return, that there's a whole wealth that happens at the moment of death and after it. That it's not as dead as everything looks, right? It's not as dark as everyone assumes. A lot of that first experience at the compost pile at the farminary is mixed because a lot of people don't want to touch it. And it's easy to be judgmental or it's easy to laugh, but frankly, like, why would you, right? When have you been taught that handling something dirty and gross is worthwhile? For most of us, especially those of us who've been raised in Christianity, it's not something that we do routinely. 
you know, whether it's songs of glory, songs of celebration, whether it's, you know, name it and claim it or whatever your prosperity gospel might be, theology of the compost is a theology of death. And frankly, a theology of real compost piles in America has a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense, like finding Chiquita banana bags inside a pile of what otherwise would be really lovely soil. But having to sift through that is difficult. It's hard. And one of the things that Nate would do when he would introduce us to the farm is the reason the farm was able to be on this property in proximity to Princeton, which is, you know, notoriously high land values, is because the land is really burnt out, really. It used to be a Christmas tree farm. It was a bunch of other kinds of farms, a sod farm for a long time. And a lot of that extracted so many nutrients and so much of the peat and so much of the humus from the soil that now it's solid clay. And so you can dig down about a foot and you can lift up the chunks of soil because it's not so, it looks like clay. You could literally like throw it on a wheel and turn it into something. And so the process of the farminary at a meta level is they're trying to turn that soil over so it can be nutritious again. That's going to take five, 10 years, right? And so for myself, I'm coming from, you know, a religious environment like Philadelphia, where the city can feel very similar, right? It can feel very much like the city has turned into a lot of clay. There's very little perspective or attention to anything other than concerns of the market. It really just feels like a market-driven city. And there are necessities to that, but it does produce soil that's really tightly packed. It's really hard for anything else to penetrate. And so part of the question is, okay, what does a five to 10 year commitment to the health of the whole piece of land look like? Because healthy things grow in healthy soil, but if you don't have healthy soil, nothing healthy will grow. And that is just a reality of farming. Like you have to attend to that. That has to be day one. You, you cannot start with the plant if the soil is not healthy. And if you care about the plant and don't understand the soil, well, you don't really understand the providence of the death that's made this space for your fertility. We could go on about <laughs> compost forever. I think it really is the richest idea that, that I learned from the farminary. That person you had as a guest, I'm sure his episode was at least as rich as anything we learned at the farminary because it's a beautiful, beautiful instantiation of what most of the time I treat as a metaphor, right? Resurrection. And then when you stand in the compost pile, it's not just a metaphor anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I would say a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of our talk with Norman Wurzba a couple episodes oh, back. Love, and, love you know, Wurzba. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing. And his book, Agrarian Spirituality, you know, talks about this idea of earthy spirituality, right? That it's, like you say, it's not agrarian metaphors, it's agrarian realities, right? right? It's getting your hands in the soil. It's knowing where your food came from. It's raising food together. But that connection to the land changes the nature of spirituality. And makes it more real in a way, more human, more embodied. Yeah, more humus Yeah, Yeah, humus, <laughs> exactly. So far in this episode, I've been talking with Wesley Willison about his experiences of the farminary. In the next part of our conversation, we'll be discussing a program he helped to create, one tailored specifically to the particular needs, questions, and faith struggles of folks in his generation. As you might have heard James and I talk about in episode 70, Many of the episodes to come in Season 4 of the Earthkeepers podcast will be exploring the theme of climate crisis and the young. In other words, we'll devote a good number of episodes to the struggles, aspirations, and earthcare initiatives of Millennials, Generation Z, and Generation Alpha. 
to that end, we've asked Wesley, an experienced podcaster himself, to host a number of episodes for the Earthkeepers podcast. So keep an eye out, and if there are folks in your life who are struggling to find their way forward in their faith or sense of purpose in the face of an uncertain future, you might want to forward links to Wesley's episodes when they come out in the coming months. For now, let's get back to our conversation with Wesley Willison. Well, you took a lot of the lessons that you learned and with some friends created a new program that took place at the Farminary, which you called Cultivate. Why don't you describe for us that initiative and how that came to be? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, seminary can be one, two, three-year program. For the Masters of Divinity, it's a three-year program. My first year, I really connected with a group of friends in that Ecologies of Faith Formation class. You know, and that's reading people like Erickson and Brown from Brenner, looking at stages of development, looking at different ways of understanding what it means to grow and change as a person, then what's reflected or contradicted by how the earth grows and changes. Coming out of that course, this is a really tight group of friends. We met every week for prayer and food, and we ended up organizing a few other projects with one of the professors who taught that course, Kenda Creasy Dean. Fantastic professor, really incredible leader. Kenda has her fingers in a lot of grants all the time. She does a lot of work with the Lilly Foundation, and there's a lot of money that Lilly invests in Kenda's work to sort of get a sense of some of the things that you're talking about, right? Like, how do we address the realities of what it means to be a Christian in America, especially as a young adult or a teen, in 2020, in 2022? And that year was 2016. And so through these projects, as we were working together, we're helping all these churches who were applying to grant programs at Princeton. They were coming and they were putting together projects of their own and trying things out in their contexts. And we were realizing that we had some ideas of our own as we were watching and assisting with these projects. So the six of us, or the seven of us, were from very different backgrounds. I could go into that, but I think suffice it to say that we had very different expectations of what healthy ministry looked like. But we were coming to a common understanding of a lot of both the beauty of what the farminary was teaching us and the value of it, but also common understanding of a set of crises that people in our age group were walking through. You know, late 20s, early 30s, a lot of people who grew up in purity culture or American evangelicalism may be coming out of a marriage, right? They may already be hitting a divorce. There may be kids involved. There may be the collapse of a career or finishing a PhD and realizing there's no market for it or, you know, the death of a parent or dealing with the American medical system or struggling to find employment that reflects your abilities, you know, chronic underemployment or the housing market, like whatever it is, it was just a landscape rife with failure, frankly, a lot of disappointment, a lot of like heightened expectations coming through high school and college. And then the other side of that, like, oh, wait. Life is a lot shittier than I thought. And so combining that with what we were learning about compost, and there seemed like there was an opportunity there. That if you're used to being taught that a life of faith is a life of dutiful obedience and then just rewards, then the kind of disappointment that you hit at the end of, you know, leaving college, trying something on your own and realizing, wait, this isn't what I thought it would be. If that ends up collapsing, that can really lead to a crisis of confidence, a crisis of faith, a feeling that like, I'm not good enough, I made a mistake, I did something wrong, I'm being judged, 
you know, there's some point here that's worthy of shame, not of recovery or healing or health. And that was common for a lot of us and for a lot of people that we knew in our congregations. And so sort of, I remember on this one trip that we were on the trip with Kendo and we were walking through the redwood forests in California, just north of San Francisco. And as we were walking, we were talking about, you know, what would we do if we were to do a project like this for ourselves? And we identified this demographic together. We were sort of able to recognize, like, there's something here that isn't getting identified, and it is a theological problem, right? There's something running aground in what we think it means to be loved by Jesus. Because there's something around failure that's knocking us off some sense of belovedness or whatever it is. People are running aground as shit goes sideways in your late 20s and early 30s. And so we thought, what could we do for that group, right? What would be helpful? I mean, the thing that had helped us was encountering compost and encountering the land, encountering the farm and what it meant to re-examine some of these teachings and some of the stories that have set the architecture of our lives, right? Stories of the growth of the kingdom of God, stories of liberation from Egypt, you know, all of the biblical stories. And it's like, okay, can we give a new context, both at a new chronology of our lives, we're hitting the end of a decade and entering the 30s, but also at the moment of collapse, right? So at that combination, what could we do? And so we decided to write a proposal for a grant that would invite a set of late 20s, early 30-somethings who had gone through a loss, who had gone through some point of transition or transformation that were dealing with a massive change and give them a retreat, a space of a week or so at the farminary to reflect to read, to learn, to work with their hands, to get involved in the garden. And it would be totally free, was one of the commitments. We wanted the grant money because we didn't want anyone to have to pay for this. We thought theologically that was important. We also thought that just practically, millennials have generally gotten a pretty short end of the stick financially. It's been hard for a lot of people to build wealth or even just support themselves. So we wanted to make it as prodigal as possible, I guess. This is just as generous as possible. So that meant we applied for a certain amount of money and we set the program at a certain number of participants based on what we as seven people felt we could offer. We scheduled it for late summer 2019. We did end up getting the grant proposal approved. Kenda was a big fan. She really helped us organize it. Nate was a huge ally as well. You know, the continuing education department at the seminary was interested in this. There was a lot of people at the institution who were very helpful in making this happen. But the vast majority of the money we knew was going to go towards paying for an all-inclusive project for these folks to come. So we set up the application process. We put the applications out into the wild. One of us in the friend group has a much larger social media platform. And so based on his advocacy, on other people that we shared it with, reaching out to congregations that we were from, we ended up getting about 300 applications. For what originally was 10 spots, we increased it up to 12 because we're like, there's just too much here. We can't, we feel like we've got to stretch. We've got to go for it. And so we read through those applications in, you know, the early spring of 2019. We sent invitations later in that spring and worked in the prep and the sort of pre-conference curriculum over that summer. And then people came in late August to the farm and we had five days together at the farm. It was really special. I'm focusing on this 300 applicants uh, yeah. for 10 spots. Right. And I'm wondering if you think there was something indicative 
in that, you know, it, it was a first time program. This had not happened before. So people hadn't known about it before. These are not seminary students. I'm wondering what that suggests, the response, what it suggests about the larger questions, maybe that your generation is asking, you know, about their points of pain or their deep questions or even their aspirations. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we, as a group of friends, we are in that demographic, right? So there's a bit of an irony here is, you know, you maybe could call it blind leading the blind. But I guess another way to think about it is we knew the pain points acutely because it was us. It was our friends. It was people that we knew. It was people who had decided not to go to seminary because they couldn't afford it or decided not to go to seminary because of whatever theological running aground they'd already experienced or decided not to commit to a church because of their questions around sexuality or financial justice or things like that. And we knew that there were people who needed this. We didn't exactly know the scale or scope of it. I think the 300 applicants was, you know, that was an unfortunate development for us because it was just so many people that we had to say no to. I mean, it's a lot of stories to carry when you get, you know, we had a very significant application. It was three essays in addition to, I mean, you could send in video interview recordings if you wanted. We tried to make it accessible. It was a significant barrier to application. But on the other hand, of course, it was fully paid. It was zero cost if you were admitted. So I understand that that pull. Those applications, I mean, they're sitting in a file on my computer anyways. I still have those because they're beautiful. People really shared their stories. And we were asking about the intersections of these things that have already been describing, right? A story that you were told specifically from your faith around who you are, what you're for, what you do, where you belong. And then as you mature, as you age out of young adulthood, that collapses, that fails. And what do you do then? And so people who are in the middle of that, we wanted a space for them. And that's what people wrote. That is a lot of stories to wade through at that level. And I think merely the care that we put into the application, I am proud of that because people really did respond with beautiful, beautiful accounts of themselves. And we wrote back to people, you know, vast majority of people aren't admitted, but we tried to reach out to everyone who wrote and said, just thank you for confiding in us, you know, for sharing with us. You know, we can't honor your story in the way that it deserves. But we see and hear you. You know, we've acknowledged that what you're dealing with, that what you're facing is, you know, maybe you are alone, right? Really alone. And you don't have anyone else to talk to. And so you send this application to random folks off in New Jersey, you know? <laughs> I'm sure that the Princeton imprint drew a lot of people. I'm sure that the imprint of this one friend who has a significant following drew people. But that's not what came across in the applications. We weren't getting half-assed applications that were clearly just trying for a nice vacation in Princeton, New Jersey. No, it was people who were laying out their sense of crisis and reaching out for some help. And so it was beautiful to be able to accept and get to know the people that we did, but it did feel like a loss that there was only 12 spots. But we had already committed to making it free. We didn't yeah. want this to be a pay-to-play thing. We didn't want this just to be for, you know, people who have already gotten a lot of financial advantages in life. And so we did end up with people who, you know, did reflect a full spectrum, a very, very wide diversity. And it was a really, really incredible group of people. What were some of the changes that you saw in participants? You know, conveniently enough, I made a whole podcast about this. <laughs> I was... The documentarian of the week um, was part of my responsibility, whether photography or audio. And I had committed heading into this that I wanted to tell the story of making this, whether we succeeded or failed. 
in an audio format. I wanted to have people's voices recorded. I just think voice is a very inclusive and accessible format. And to interview someone, you hear the emotion, you hear the pathos more than you get when you know people write. Only certain people really can write in a way that conveys everything that's going on. And I wanted it to be accessible. So I did make this podcast. It's only five parts, one for each day. And we were able to catch a lot of these stories and hear from the participants as well as the leaders of the program of what happened, how did things change and grow and evolve. We had one person coming in who had significant health concerns. He had a heart condition that, you know, he had planted a church in upstate New York. And while he had done this planting in his early 20s, you know, was coming in the American Evangelical Church Growth Movement, he developed a heart condition and was unable to continue with the church plant. Like, it really limited his work. And he ended up getting health care from his part-time job at a mattress store, not from the church. The church did not take care of him. And that was a breaking point for him. You know, he walked away from a lot of things because of that. Now he sells insurance in Illinois, has a beautiful family, and he came sort of with some of these questions about, like, what is it that I'm doing with myself, right? Like, am I somehow falling short? How do I make sense of this transition that I've been going through? And his heart is still you know, not in great shape, right? Like he does still have these significant health concerns. And so watching him pace through this experience and sort through, I have four kids that I love. I have a job that helps me love them. I have people surrounding me who love me. And one of the biggest things that's contending against this is my sense of broken purpose. How do I like piece that together? What does it mean to then come to the compost pile and hand over some of these hopes or expectations or things that I had for myself or things that I thought God was trying to do with me and listen anew? His story is really beautiful. I really think it was a very special person to have that kind of courage. So we're going to obviously link to the podcast in the show notes so people can listen. I wonder though if there's an excerpt that we could play that would give people a sense of that podcast. The fourth episode goes over our commitment to food as a part of this experience that we wanted our bodily experience together of eating together and the kind of community that happens around food to be resonant, total, immersive, excellent, not just like passable. A lot of conference food is only passable if that. We want it to be excellent food. And the guy who is in charge of cooking, Jeff, did a fantastic job. And the real highlight was on the last night together before the next day where people would start flying home, we did communion together under the trees in the middle of the farm property. And we shared communion with each other, shared the Eucharist like right at the end of the meal, like before dessert. And there's a recording of that where you can hear the pacing of the meal slow down. You can hear Werner, one of the leaders, leading us through the words of institution, and you can hear people passing the bread and the wine to each other. You can hear the crickets and the cicadas and the farm as well chiming in. It's a special moment. Welcome back to the Cultivate Podcast. I'm Wes Willison. In this episode, we're going to talk about food, harvest, and the Eucharist, or communion. A lot of what we did this week centered on food, and we're going to try to explain a little bit about why that was and why it was so meaningful to us. So before we get to that final night of communion together, we have to go back a little bit. 
In addition to his many talents, Jeff Chu is a tremendous cook. And so when we were splitting up responsibilities for this project, we agreed that Jeff not only would be in charge of cooking and feeding, but in charge of hospitality. It's a real gift to be able to feed people in a physical way, to create food and to tell a story through food that delights people and gives them energy. Probably the highlight for me was communion on the last night. And there we were under the stars and under the trees, laughing and drinking wine and carrying a lot of grief and sorrow and uncertainty, maybe a little bit like the disciples back in the day. And then we interrupted dinner. But when you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. And Jen, would you do me And Werner said the words of institution. Whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the saving grace of Christ until Christ becomes, returns again. Friend, this is a meal for you. This is for you. A gift. And it was so simple. And it was so gorgeous. And it was so transcendent. And it was so sacred that without a word, I think everybody at that table recognized how holy it was. And we honored that holiness by holding silence for the entire time. The only sound that you could hear was the cup and the bread being passed and the person who had just taken the bread and the cup saying to the next one, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. I don't think I'll ever forget that. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. My communion was too much for me. I was like, this is the most beautiful thing ever. And Pearl. And why doesn't communion happen just outside at a farm every second? And it was so beautiful. And it was like, my heart was cracking open and, and the world was cracking open and possibilities and moments together were so beautiful and it all made sense. So, yeah, comment on what was happening there and maybe answer a question for me. In that account of that meal, it seemed like there was transformation happening all over the place and it wasn't just in the people who came you know, as the applicant says, Not the at all. Yeah. people that you were serving, but the people who were doing the serving, it seems, were profoundly changed as well. Is that true? Is that something I'm picking up that's accurate? Yes. This was a program that we needed for ourselves. You know, we made the thing that we wish someone had offered us. I think we made the thing that many of us wanted when we applied to seminary, period. Right? We wanted something like this when we chose to go to a three-year degree program, I can speak for myself that the simple reality of that moment together, of just being together and doing that together across all of our backgrounds and all of our anticipations, all of our needs, and that moment just standing for what it was, 
was very affirming for me. That like the thing didn't need to make sense in my head for it to be beloved and to be good. They could just be and appreciate and soak that in. I I mean, it's hard to even articulate like the value of food over a podcast, (laughs) but even just the experience of like having had such a wonderful meal together, even just comparing that to the wafer and little cup of juice that I'm used to. I mean, that alone was a transformation. Just like, wow, like this is a taste, right? In the same way that that little taste that we do on Sunday mornings points towards this other fuller thing, so does this meal right now with scallops and leftovers and, you know, steak and gluten-free flatbread because, like, no one could eat gluten, that the thing, everyone would die from gluten. So it was like, there's that all of this points towards the next fuller, bigger thing. That has never been clearer to me than that because I was like, this is pretty full. Like, this experience feels quite capacious. And yet, there's still this next thing that God is inviting us into. That was really exciting. That felt like, look, maybe my role in preparing or announcing or constructing, developing this is far less than I had convinced myself it would be before I went to seminary. And that's that's good. It's okay to just let the kingdom of God unfold and show up. Because that moment felt like a moment of rest. It felt like, finally, here's something where whatever the things that we've really collapsed into, this is still okay. We can still just eat together and share together and let the rest of the things just be. That experience, when I listened to it on the podcast of that meal, pushed me right back to an experience I had in Uganda, actually, with your parents. It was American Thanksgiving, and... There's so many expats there who don't know what Thanksgiving is even, but there was a night where so many people, I think it was maybe 20, 30 people from different countries decided to throw an American Thanksgiving for the Americans, right? And there weren't that many of us, I think, but people were trying their best to, you know, recreate typically American dishes, right? And I'm not even sure if they found turkey, but I think it was hard to get. But they had strung lice between the palm trees and sat at this big, long table under the stars. And I remember, you know, after the meal, just sitting there listening to people talk and share, just feeling, first of all, so loved, but second, so grateful, right? And I think like you, I had a sense of the kingdom of God, right? This is a taste of what's to come. Um, And it was such a blessing to me. And I will say it is probably the most powerful Thanksgiving I've ever had was being loved and served that way. All that said, let me ask, what's next for you? I mean, this is a powerful experience for you and for a lot of people. I'm wondering, how does that translate into the future? Yeah. Well, I don't work full-time in ministry. I work as a realtor, and it's work that I love. It's really special to me of concern, of release, of anxiety came from experiences like those at the farminary, of recognizing that the work of God carries on, you know, that compost pile turns. And I have been very blessed to have the space 
to let go of so many things that had been so hard for me. Whether that's through therapy, whether that's through my marriage to my wife, owning a dog has been very meaningful to me. Said goodbye to a dog in 2019 and welcomed a new one. So that was part of my experience of the farminary is this very close companion that actually forced, I think you knew him, Lincoln. He, he was in Uganda with us. He was a Jack yep. Russell. Yep. He was a real terror in Uganda. And then he turned into a sweetie pie at the end of his life. We buried him at the farminary before the Cultivate program. We had hoped that he would be one of the pastors <laughs> of the program because he was so gifted emotionally. Like he just had such a sense of what people needed, but he ended up dying earlier that summer. And that was a part of the grief that, you know, my wife and I, especially in this group of friends, we all loved Lincoln very much. And, you know, it ended up being a very human program, not so many animals as we had hoped. But all of that, I think the release of pressure around that has been necessary for me. I think that's why I keep coming back to Luther, if you want to know some of the other things that are next, is that that's a big part of what is appealing to me about some of the theology of writers like that, is pointing to just the givenness of faith, of just the acceptance that you're thrown into this compost pile, enjoy it. You know, like it's not going to be other than this, and thank the Lord. The farminary continues. It's cool to see the farm itself grow, the space of land that's under cultivation grow, the compost pile. Like all of that is continuing. That land is thriving uh, and it continues to teach. And it'll be really fun to see how that space ages, knowing that we're coming to it at the end of what had seemed like a dark period for that land. I mean, that's just wild, right? This is land that even sod farmers had passed off as worthless. Christmas tree farmers determined it worthless, sold it to sod farmers, they determined it worthless. Then the seminary picked it up. And here it is, making some kind of new turnaround. So if that isn't hope for, you know, what I experienced to be a really rough patch for the American church right now, that's the kind of stuff where it's like, hey, as dark as it gets, compost continues, even if you don't know what's going on. And I can have some faith in that. We've been in conversation with my nephew, Wesley Willison, about a novel kind of theological education at the farminary and the impacts it has had on his life, his faith, and his leadership. If you want to learn more about the farminary or if you want to listen to Wesley's limited podcast series called Cultivate, definitely check out the show notes on the Earthkeepers podcast website and be on the lookout for episodes of this podcast that Wesley will be hosting in the coming months. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.